Today is the 19th of August, 2014, and this is episode 137. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and I'm here today with Stephanie Murphy, one of the other hosts here at LTB. Hi. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Preston Byrne, an American lawyer living the solicitor's life in the UK. Preston. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, No problem, Adam. Uh, Glad to be here. We were going to talk about primarily rewards programs and user-created assets and kind of the craziness that's surrounding that space and whether it's legal and what's okay and what's not. But yesterday, we had some interesting news out of the New York Department of Financial Services. And I know that you're not an, an American lawyer, so I, you know, we're not expecting any sort of conclusive answers from you, but I would like to talk about this for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Let me, let me quote Coindesk at you. Quote, notably, the document states that Bitcoin businesses that receive, transmit, store, or convert virtual currency for customers buy and sell virtual currency as a customer business, control, administer, or issue a virtual currency, or perform conversions between Bitcoin and fiat or any other value exchange will need to be licensed to operate in New York City. Now, Preston, this excludes merchants, but you know, is this proposed rule as stifling as it seems? So I, I think that the proper way to really view these regulations is as a discussion draft. We have to look at them, and, uh, and the important thing really is to read them and pick them apart and understand what the regulator is trying to do. Cryptocurrency doesn't fit particularly neatly into existing regulatory frameworks. For example, in the European Union, we have something called the Electronic Money Directive, And the EMD regulates currencies with issuers. So, for example, if you're dealing with airline miles or similar reward systems where you have units which are equivalent to money, which can be held, which can be exchanged, which can be traded. But, and I think the fact that they call it a virtual currency rather than a cryptocurrency is indicative of the regulator's understanding of the technology. So an important first step, I think, is to really review it, pick it apart. And as you mentioned earlier, I'm not a US lawyer, so um, unfortunately I won't be able to give you too much technical detail as to how that works in the state of New York. But yeah, look at this, pick it apart, and then try to make what they want to achieve fit what's actually going on in the cryptocurrency economy, because ultimately people who use cryptocurrency are the ones who understand it best. I would think this may go without saying, but maybe not anymore. But I think the proper way to view these regulations is a blight on human freedom. I mean, the ability to be free to transact financially is a basic human right. And someone getting in the middle of that is just anathema to people's ability to transact freely. So I I view this as a pain to humanity. Well, but it's in the name of customer protection, Stephanie. We we have to protect the customer. Well, that doesn't work. It doesn't. (laughs) I I don't need any protection. Thank you very much. New York, I'm telling you, I don't need your services. Please leave me alone. They're not going to. But no, we, we don't need it. These kinds of regulations don't work in the banking industry to prevent corruption and fraud and things that hurt the consumers who they're supposed to protect. And that's not even the point of those regulations. Uh, so why would it, people be so silly as to think that they'll work for Bitcoin to, quote, protect the consumer or to prevent criminals and money launderers and all kinds of other things, which money laundering is, you could argue, just a fabricated non-crime with no victim, uh, the act of moving money around in ways that the government doesn't like. 
Well, it's control. I mean, I think that, that that's really what a lot of this stuff comes down to. I'm curious for your perspective on this, Preston. It really feels like, again, this is an attempt to identify the, regardless of the specifics of the legislation, what we've seen from this type of financial authority before, and again, what it looks like we're going to see here, is that they would like to control the endpoints. They would like to know who everybody is. It looks like, again, from the way that this is written, it is the start. It's like, it's like this is the obviously terrible thing that most people within the community will agree with this is bad and there will be pushback against it. But then what results from that isn't, is do we still have regulation or do we not have regulation by this authority? It's what type of regulation is it? And so regardless of where that lands, you still have regulation where before you only had the existing financial regulation that already applied to all this stuff to begin with. That's absolutely right. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, I, as a lawyer, you have to be a pragmatist and you can't say, well, you know, this is, a, this is an assault on human freedom, but, you know, irrespective of what your personal conviction might be. You have to look at it in a, in a commercial context. And really, I, I think that for people who use Bitcoin and advocate in favor of Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, this should really be viewed as a victory rather than a defeat. Because this provides a framework in which Bitcoin can be legally used and accepted by financial institutions, insurers, you know, God knows who else. And to be frank, it's the kind of stuff that anyone else dealing in specie or fiat would be subject to and the kinds of regulations they'd be subject to, which again are for consumer protection purposes. But Bitcoin is not fiat and it's not specie. It's something completely different. And I think we're doing fine without this policy in place right now. Then what is it if it's not specie? It's something completely different. It's something different. And I mean, not that I agree with regulations on the current banking regulations on fiat either, but it's not inevitable that every Bitcoin transaction is going to be tracked and controlled and identified. And no, they're registered on the blockchain. The government needs doesn't need to do that. Bitcoin is really not very useful if you can't interact with the mainstream financial system. Um, a number, I mean, it really, it really is ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. It's not at all. very I, useful. I, what, I, what about the entire economy that's been made up to this point in Bitcoin? I speak to startups every single day who want to enter into the crypto space in Europe. And, and I speak to startups every single day or, or almost every single day. And all of them are having a really hard time getting bank accounts because the banking sector in Europe won't actually allow them to interact with the banking system because there's a risk that by dealing funds, which originated in Bitcoin, those banks will be handling and dealing with the proceeds of crime. So this is preventing development from happening in the Bitcoin space at this point. The lack of a regulatory framework is keeping the big players out, which means that the, you know, the benefits of this technology in terms of disintermediating those big players are really not going to proliferate and spread because ultimately, if you're going to have a technology spread, it needs to be useful because if it has no use, I would be very hard pressed in central London to find anywhere where I could spend my bitcoins unless I went out looking for it and went out to find it because there isn't a framework and therefore mainstream banks, mainstream financial institutions, businesses, merchants are very reluctant to accept it because otherwise you have to go through one of the two, you know, GoCoin or uh, BitPay. And even then you're introducing risks to your business and you're potentially jeopardizing banking relationships, which you need. So I think that a legal framework, say what you want politically one way or the other, it was going to happen no matter what. And if we assume, as I do, that the state has a role to play in everyday life and that it has to be consistent in the way that it applies the laws, I think that this is absolutely a welcome move. Um, and I think that it's, uh, it's a very progressive move by the state of New York.
So it sounds like you're saying that this is good because this is the establishment or the authority saying that Bitcoin is money and money has certain rules. And therefore, since Bitcoin is money, it has certain rules and we have the authority to make rules. And Stephanie, it sounds like you're saying that this might be money, but it's not their money to have anything to do with whatsoever. So regardless, so it doesn't qualify because unlike the other types of money, this one is not theirs. Is that accurate at all? Pretty much. I mean, I think the position is that, I, you know, I'm a libertarian as it happens. Um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. The, um, but, but because when you have to deal with legal rules every day, as a matter of practice, yeah, you can have your opinions about, about how those rules operate on the merits. And I think the, the general libertarian position is go back to the common law of 1750 and you've got everything sort of, you know, very neatly sewn up and the financial regulations are, are you know, oppressive and not necessary and very inflexible. But ultimately you have to look at the system that we live in and the likelihood of certain outcomes and how the state should behave given a certain set of circumstances. If the state is going to regulate finance, which it clearly will continue to do, I don't see any real problem with it regulating cryptocurrency and other forms of decentralized exchange. Change because ultimately there are two sides. One of those sides is the regulatory side, which is necessary if mainstream institutions are going to get into the sector. And the other side is consumer protection. And I think that when you're seeing a lot of pre-sales and things like that, you have public offering rules, financial promotion rules, accredited investor statutes, and all of those are designed to protect people from a very specific mischief. And I think that a lot of these those types of transactions are exactly the laws were designed to prevent. So no, I take a very pragmatic view about this, and I don't think there's any problem with it. So accredited investor rules are meant to protect people? I mean, doesn't that keep a lot of people out of the market who might otherwise be able to benefit from it? Yes, but ultimately, it's also it's elucidating a degree of disclosure from issuers of securities so that they have to go through a process and ensure that there's actually legitimate business behind the security which they're issuing to the public before they can actually do so. Because otherwise you get little old ladies getting phone calls from someone saying, oh, buy this stock, it's great, it's the next hot thing. They hand over their life savings and it turns out not to exist. So you need laws which prevent that sort of thing from happening to discourage that behavior in order that the vulnerable, and there are Kristen, many vulnerable people, are you know are protected. I have to say, it doesn't sound like you're just simply a pragmatist libertarian who's reluctantly accepting that the state exists. It sounds like you wholeheartedly support these things. I think that elucidating the position and supporting wholeheartedly the position are not necessarily the same thing. We have invited Preston on to talk to us about these issues. I agree with you in that I think there is a considerable degree of state overreach in a lot of sectors, finance included. And this goes both ways, both in terms of the way that consumers interact with the financial sector, but also in terms of regulation of the banks, because they're crippling the banks on the one hand by requiring them to hold, for example, tremendous amounts of capital. And then on the other hand, they're requiring the banks, you know, they're printing money so that the banks can deposit security with the central bank so that they can meet those balance sheet requirements. And stuff like that is insane. But at the same time, you do have to take the pragmatic approach, particularly when you're on internet radio shows, which are going to be you know, broadcast all over the world, because generally your career depends on it. But I sympathize with a lot of these views. <laughs> well, you chose to have that career, man. I mean, you don't have to be a lawyer. Like, if you really didn't support these things, you could just have your political views and work in a different field, right? Well, it's, it, it helps to understand them when you do it sort of every single day. And that's actually, even though there are things that go on, which I disagree with, I really very much enjoy the process of actually working with it. Because when these kinds of macroeconomic issues interest you, I think there are two ways you can handle it. Either one, you can sort of work at a think tank and, and write about it. 
which a lot of my friends do. Or two, you can actually get your hands dirty and really get really get involved and actually negotiate the deals, which the rest of the world is talking about. And I, I enjoy that a lot. There are things about it I don't like from a political perspective, but the work is fascinating. So I, I think that's a bit of a, a a bit of a more comprehensive explanation as to how I arrived at this position. By saying that I'm a libertarian, but at the same time saying, you know, well, financial regulation is going to happen anyway, because ultimately, if you're going to have financial regulation, make it consistent. If you don't like financial regulation, change it consistently. But I think that it's a we should not be the least bit surprised that the state has stepped in and said, yes, well, now we're going to regulate Bitcoin or Bitcoin businesses as we regulate other kinds of money transmitting businesses. It's just a, a question of consistency. So let's talk about that for a second, because this is, I think, an important point and something that really jumped out at me when I was looking at this. So the internet and uh, websites, you know, the early web had actually quite a long time before there were any sort of meaningful restrictions or regulations put on it. And so again, when I look at this and I see how broad it is and how it includes just about everything and everybody, it makes me feel like if we were applying this same type of situation to the early internet, then what we'd be seeing here is that every website that anybody ever puts up needs to have applied for a business license since they're businesses. Doesn't matter that they're not profitable. Doesn't matter that they're, you know, mostly just messing around and just somebody playing with something. It's a website. Websites are businesses. And so they need licenses. They need prior approval. They need to, you know, submit change requests if they're going to, you know, make any modification to their offering or content. If that had happened, would we have the internet that we do today or would we just have corporate front pages that have Asiart on it because nobody ever bothered to develop anything else? Isn't this a kind of an analogous situation? I'm not quite sure that it is because I think that if you look at your standard cryptocurrency protocol, you find that most of the blockchains are actually quite ossified. They perform a very limited function. So there are these 2.0 projects that live on top of Bitcoin, which do various different things. But at the moment, not with perhaps the exception of counterparty. Not a lot of them have really got any traction. So, so it's actually not like the early internet in that you're not looking at that kind of, of utility from a single blockchain. And I don't think you actually ever will get that kind of utility from a single blockchain. By contrast, though, I mean, there are other ways to use blockchains. It's not just all about money. As it happens, I also work for Project Douglas, which is a open source DAO project. My two partners and I, Dennis McKinnon and Casey Coleman, uh, built a DAO a couple of months or actually about a month ago, almost to the day. And we think that that sort of stuff is really where the decentralized internet is going. Yes, you have these cryptocurrency things. And yes, you have decentralized asset exchanges. And yes, people are wrapping different kinds of data on top of tokens, which they're then broadcasting over the Bitcoin network. But I don't think that those kinds of applications are really commercially useful, if that, if that makes sense. But there's, there's sort of an indication of where things are going to go. And in those kinds of applications, the 2.0 stuff, then maybe you're going to see a slightly more open model, which looks more like the internet. But when you're using it as money, as most people do with most cryptocurrencies, I don't see a problem with that. Well, but my point is, is that how do you differentiate between those two things? Because at their core, really, the only thing that cryptocurrency innovates is that it makes a verifiable stake, something that is now transmissible via person to person means that's essentially what they do so that yeah has monetary uses but as you've said you know and as i certainly am interested in there are lots and lots of non-monetary uses that are developing so that's my primary concern when i see things like this is that this looks like it's a throw the baby out with the bathwater type thing and really the best case that can be had from something like this is simply fighting for exemptions but again you're then accepting the broad they have the authority to do this in this jurisdiction and doesn't that also mean that they have the authority to do it in london and the authority to do it in China. And I mean, just about everywhere else can have their own set of layered rules. 
I think that that's what we'll probably wind up seeing, at least initially. But with the 2.0 things, they haven't necessarily regulated the blockchain in itself. What they have done is they've regulated the way that businesses interact with it and what obligations those businesses have in relation to services they provide to the public in respect of it. So if you have a Bitcoin wallet and let's say, you know, the side chains kicks off, they do whatever. And someone invents a decentralized application, which you can use to use the blockchain in some different way. I don't get the sense that this is really going to cover that. What this is designed for is service providers. I mean, if you look at receiving or transmitting on behalf of customers, securing, storing, or custody and control, retail conversion, buying and selling, controlling, administering, or issuing, at that point, you're not dealing with the functionality. You're dealing with services and service provision. So I don't think that the argument really holds water that regulation of Bitcoin is going to prevent innovation on the network. What it is going to do is it's going to make sure when people entrust their funds to other people, that the custodians of those funds, as represented in a, as a cryptocurrency balance, are subject to certain obligations. So I, I think there's a distinction to be made there. And it's, it's a fine one, but it should be made. So Preston, in the last couple of months, we've seen sort of a bit of pushback against the Bitcoin Foundation. And that led to kind of an interesting proposal from Olivier Jensen's that then kind of led to a project that you mentioned earlier, Project Douglas, kicking off our Eris, is it? Uh, I mean, Eris is the platform and Douglas is is the project. But yeah, that that's what okay. it's called. Does that stand for something? You've told me this before, I think. Oh, no. I mean, we. I think uh, Douglas is named after Doug, and the platform we use. And Eris is, is the name of the whole thing, which is really wrapped up all into one, which is the sort of neat little thing. And it was just our, our attempt at responding to that bounty. So basically, Olivier was none too pleased with the Bitcoin Foundation after uh, Bitcoin 2014. So he said, you know what, I'll give, I'll give 100 grand to uh, the team of individuals who can build a DAO that performs certain functions, including crowdfunding, voting, and representation, and this and that. And it, unfortunately, it went to Mike Hearn, who came up with a sort of Kickstarter-type Bitcoin project. And that, that's fair enough, because his mandate was two-part. One of them was get funding for the core development of Bitcoin, because apparently, despite the Bitcoin's funda- Bitcoin Foundation's considerable coffers, that isn't happening. And the other one was build a GAO. And so the Ethereum community has been working on these little critters for some time. That was our attempt to respond to Olivier and actually create something which was workable. And we call it Eris. So, I mean, it's very, very simple. But ultimately, it, I think it represents a, a pretty important development. And we're going to see a lot of more of that coming out of the Ethereum space or Ethereum community in the next couple of months. So the DAO is uh, DAO is Distributed Autonomous Organization or the Ethereum spin on the DAC concept. There are a couple of other acronyms that are all DA starting with. Um, so, so at kind of like a base level, what is the purpose of Eris? I think we should actually back up and explain what's sort of the underlying principle of Eris. And you really have to go quite a way back to Nick Zabo back in 1997 um, and in his essay, Formalizing and Securing Relationships on Public Networks. And Nick Zabo said that you could use cryptography much in the way that Bitcoin operates on a consistent basis, among other people who know that their transactions are going to be carried out consistently between themselves. You can also use more complex types of transactions, multi-party transactions, not not like multi-sig, but literally multi-party. So different people having different obligations subject to different thresholds. And the body of code, which constituted that agreement, he called the smart contract. So there have been a number of people working on smart contracts in, in various places around the world for the last couple of months. And Eris was was our attempt really to sort of get something together which worked, which ran itself on smart contracts, because there are a lot of different projects, all, almost all of them around Ethereum. And a smart contract basically is, it's a computer program, but it's one that lives on a blockchain and works on a blockchain and allows you to do different things with a blockchain 
than sort of sending data back and forth, which I think Bitcoin, it's a very simple and basic one. You can send ones and zeros, but with this, you can actually make more complex communications. So with those complex communications, again, this is more designed as kind of like a leadership or decision-making platform. You can really design a DAO to do anything you want. Um, There's a chap named Aaron Bale who's working on one which is called BitVotes. So in that way, you register with the network, you register with the smart contract that he's put on, and you can vote on issues with it, and you you accrue voting power based on the amount of time that you've been registered with the network. With us, it was really a decision-making platform. That's right. And what we did is we basically coded up a smart contract, which is it's part nonprofit organization, and it's also part bondholder transaction, bond T's and C's. And we did that and we said, look, you can interact with this thing in a certain way. When you put in certain inputs, you're going to get certain outputs. One of those is voting. And we thought that that was a pretty useful way to try to replace a, a 501c6, which Bitcoin Foundation is. It's a, a trade association. So ultimately, it's a very, very basic implementation of smart contracts. But we're not really seeing anything particularly complex being developed in the space. It, it was a lot of fun to build, so uh, which is why we did And ultimately, I think that's why I'm not too worried about Bitcoin regulation stifling blockchain technology. Because to be honest with you, I I, I view Bitcoin as actually a very straightforward and simple implementation. It was the first. It went straight out into open beta. There was no alpha testing. Uh, We don't know who developed it or how. And it's pretty much done the same thing for the last four years. But I think that moving forward, we're going to see much more complex communications, which aren't going to fall within the virtual currency uh, umbrella, for example, communications and things like that. And I think that's really where the innovation is going to be. But on that note, when it comes to innovation happening and it comes to, uh, you know, you're saying that that none of these things we've talked about will essentially stifle anything. It just, you know, is a kind of tempering process, essentially making it stronger as we go. Is that true? You know, smart contracts, you're right, seem like they're a lot more complicated than something as simple as a token that we trade back and forth representing value between several of us. So aren't smart contracts de facto outside of national legal systems? I mean, they can reference national legal systems, but they exist in a state that is beyond national legal systems in terms of where they actually exist. Absolutely not. Um, smart contracts or legal contracts is, uh, you know, as the ones you get when you go to sign up for a bank account or when you sign a receipt or anything else. So it's just programmatic. Well, the law covers them quite well in the sense that let's say you have Alice and Bob and Bob wants to buy a car from Alice. So he signs a purchase contract. Yeah, that, that's your regular bog standard contract. Let's say you then do that over a smart contract on a blockchain. Even though you don't have all of the terms written out, there are various tests which the law will imply onto the smart contract in order to determine what law governs and what the terms should be. For example, there's the business, uh, we call it the business efficacy test. And so if A and B enter into a contract and the terms are simply financial and mechanical, a court will look at the contract and say, what terms do we imply onto the contract in order to make it efficacious for the purpose that the parties entered into it? Or for example, let's say you've got a consumer purchase contract, you've got sale of goods act, in the US you've got the, you know, the uniform commercial code. So smart contracts, the same logic doesn't really apply because enforcement could be more difficult in the sense that the cryptography is basically the same. But in terms of the legal principles that govern it, I think it's very straightforward. Well, but where is the jurisdiction is the question is that if a, if a smart contract is created in Switzerland, let's say, and one party in Africa and one party in you know Asia takes it, where is jurisdiction on that? Well, let's say, so let's say you've got one party in London where I'm, where I'm qualified so I can actually give an answer. And you've got one party in Tennessee. So the party in Tennessee makes an offer on a smart contract for a smart loan of the underlying units in the blockchain. 
and the party in London accepts it. At that point, the contract has been concluded in London according to English law. So English law would potentially apply unless the parties had contracted it out. In the event that there's a conflict between London and Tennessee law, we go to conflicts of law rules, see where the action is brought, that sort of thing. So this is the sort of stuff, people have been drafting crappy contracts. As a consequence of that, we have all of these rules around them, which figure out what to do when the relevant provisions are missing. A basic smart contract that you enter into that doesn't really have any prosaic rules. There are mechanisms available which determine how that contract should be interpreted. The only real question is one of enforceability, which cryptography makes very difficult to do if there's something broken in it. What you're saying is that the jurisdiction is based on whatever the rules, essentially where it's issued, right? Because if the rules are that it's issued in London and then somebody accepts it and they are essentially accepting something that originated from London and thus is governed by that set of rules. I mean, if you have someone in the Czech Republic in Brazil, and then if you have someone in Arizona and China, and then if you have someone in Vietnam, it depends on how those rules interact. So let's say there's a rule in one jurisdiction that the contract is made where it's accepted, and then in the other jurisdiction, the rule is the same, the contract will be made there. So this is, it's a question of facts on the ground. It's hard for us to say quite what it's going to look like because we've seen you know, none of them effectively in commercial contexts, but they're coming. They're on the way. Okay. So that's interesting. It seems like the likely type of scenario this creates is one where you have people who essentially want to have less on the regulation side moving to their businesses to places where they don't have that burden which is, again, something that's been kind of theorized. We've seen some people do it, but it, it really is just about how large the barrier to entry is. Because that's the thing, again, that I, I look at when I, that's the thing that I see when I look at what's going on here is that we are seeing this is, this might be legitimacy by some definitions, but it comes at the expense of the innovative startups that don't have several hundred thousand dollars to throw at lawyer fees. That's my primary concern. That's why I think that this is not really a promising sign because it seems like that's what this is. It's the barrier to entry being raised just like in every other industry. And financial tech has been pretty stagnant for a very long time because of this phenomenon. When you look at smart contracts, and I think really a long view, sort of 10, 15 years, I think that equation actually gets somewhat reversed. So let's say you're talking about a developing nation where you actually need a financial infrastructure in order to promote economic development. At the moment, what you need to do is you need to build a building, you need to put some servers in it, you need to staff it, you need to employ it, you need to do all of this stuff, which is tremendously expensive, which actually prevents the building from being built. If, however, you had a situation where you could have a sort of algorithmically governed institution, which really only lived on a blockchain or some you know future derivative of a blockchain, which is superior to it, what you have is a situation where you can implement the, this kind of market infrastructure in places that don't have it very inexpensively those pieces of market infrastructure would be subject to financial regulation. But the efficiency gains that you're getting by not having to build the building, run it, you know, run electricity, employ staff, and all the rest of it, that's, that's the kind of view that I'm taking on this. Yes, in the short term, you might see innovation being stifled. In the medium to long term, I think that ultimately this is going to direct innovation towards those kinds of applications, which I think are more useful than you know this anarcho-capitalist view, apologies to Stephanie, that this thing should be completely beyond jurisdiction and state control. So uh, Preston, you and I started having a conversation, I guess it was about a week ago, um, talking about what we're doing here with LTB coin. And you basically told me that we were the only people who weren't violating accredited investor disclosure laws or something like that because we weren't selling it. And there are other uh, operations out there that are currently using tokens for fundraising. So can you talk to us about that? Well, I mean, just to be clear, I, I didn't tell you that, but I did say it was, it was refreshing that you, because I'm not US qualified. But but I mean, you- I think you said it might. Yeah, it, well, it might, but again, you, you'd have to seek your own counsel for that. 
um, I say with a, with an ear to ear grin on my face. But ultimately, what you're doing with LTB coin is you've thought about and you've thought through these issues. And I, I speak with a lot of sort of base who look at these kinds of obstacles. And they say, well, you know what? Skype didn't do it. They just set up a telecommunications network. And we're just going to forge straight ahead and do this anyway. And I think that looking at what's going on there in the context of the regulation um, that's been passed in, in the state of New York and the regulation that already exists really shows why the regulation is going to push innovation into areas which are actually productive rather than areas which aren't. Because if you see these crypto equity startups, this is not equity. Um, you know, securities which are traded on counterparty or assets which are not traded on counterparty, those are not assets. Those are not securities because they haven't been properly structured in advance, which is really what you need to do in order to do that properly. So there is, I think, a market for that. And I think that a decentralized network is more than capable of communicating those kinds of messages and that kind of data. But in order to do that, yes, you do need high startup costs and you do need to hire lawyers and you do need a regulatory regime which understands um, how cryptocurrency works and has been designed in order to transfer those kinds of assets back and forth. When you do that, you realize significant efficiencies. You don't have brokers that you have to deal with. You don't have fees. People are able to hold securities directly instead of trading them through an exchange. So this kind of stuff has potential, but it really only has potential if it's done correctly. And to do it correctly, you have to put a lot of thought into it in advance. So just on that note, um, we have put a lot of thought into this. We worked on it for a good long time, and it was a decision not to sell it because there were concerns about potential issues down the road, just again, just because there's uncertainty. But at the same time, I can tell you 100% that if it had cost even $10,000 in compliance costs. We never would have tried this experiment. And so that's my concern is that like you make it so that the only people who feel like they can innovate are, I mean, we're basically back to anonymous founders is what I see from this is that over the last year, we've basically seen the end of the anonymous cryptocurrency founder because it has become more of an asset to be able to say, Hey, I'm a real person. I'm legitimate. I, you know, I have this background that makes me qualified to do this. And so they go forward and it, you know, we've seen the counterparty guys do this and a lot of other people too. But now, there was a quote from Ben Lossky saying that Satoshi essentially would have broken the law when he launched Bitcoin because he initiated and, admin and was, you know, quote, administering a currency. So this is a split more than it is necessarily a good thing. It's taking those things that you might not see use for and saying these aren't feasible to develop because there's this layer of cost that doesn't even really apply to these things in terms of like what they do or what they mean. But because they're in this broad categorical grouping, they have all the same requirements of this. It's like treating every bank like the largest banks in the country. It's kind of an insane standard, but yet it's one that's actually very advantageous to the larger players because it keeps out the smaller players. So, I mean, it's not, there's not much of a question here. I'm just curious for your thoughts. That, that's my primary concern with all this stuff. The facts are the same when you look at cryptocurrency, but it really depends how you look at it, how you're going to interpret those facts. So, for example, the European Banking Authority about two weeks ago issued an opinion to, uh, to the EU where it said that, you know, one of the major risks of cryptocurrency is that you have you know, a, a failure in network consensus and your transactions are not carried out and the network collapses and blah, 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 blah. And I think if you talk to someone who is a cryptocurrency advocate, they would say, well, that's not a flaw. That's a design feature, um, this network consensus thing. So at the moment, there, everybody's looking really at the same technology and they're arriving at different conclusions. I think it's entirely possible and indeed probable 
that as the technology advances, we're going to see more refined uses of it in, in more discrete applications. I don't think that the position that this is something which lives outside of regulation was tenable forever. I don't think it was the right position if we're going to, it depends really on what you believe. Do you believe that you should use computing to reduce costs and make businesses more competitive? If the answer is yes, then a regulated cryptocurrency is pretty much the same thing as an unregulated one. If, however, you think that cryptocurrency is a tool of resistance against the state, as I do not, then, of course, regulation is going to look very different to you. So it's really a question of perspective. I don't think that these differences, you know, we should talk about these differences in perspective, because ultimately, making sure we get the balance right, and going, from my perspective at least, at the utility, um, making ordinary people's lives better, it doesn't necessarily involve having something which is beyond legal control. I think it's entirely possible to have something which is completely subject to legal control, which still allows ordinary people to realize, you know, to do things more cheaply and ultimately makes their lives better. But the question is, is that actually what will happen? And I think that if you look back through a lot of different technological history, you'll see that pretty much any innovative disruption that can be stopped will be stopped. And again, uh, AM and FM radio is an interesting example here. We're going to talk about this on a show sometime in the near future. But, you know, the advent of AM radio was very, very free, totally open, took a lot of time. And then as it commercialized, it was essentially monopolized. And then the FCC came through and it's a variety of forms and put a variety of controls in place that as superior technologies came out, were actually developed by the dominant radio company at the time, FM radio. It was suppressed and discredited for about 20 years. And then eventually when it was rolled out, it was rolled out as essentially AM in stereo, but really it was a fundamental reinvention and improvement of the technology. And to this day, it's still hasn't actually done much more than be that. So, I mean, that's my concern is that, yes, you're right. If the existing power structure was doing a good job or was being responsible or looked like they knew what they were doing, then I would agree with you. And I would say, okay, yeah, that's the pragmatic thing. Sure. This, this all, you know, whatever they're doing a fine job. So that's the type of system that will work here too, but they're not doing a fine job. And again, like you mentioned the European central bank, European central bank is a total basket case. Who are they to talk about anything with regards to stability or consensus or anything. Their consensus solution is to have, you know, exponentially fewer people who make decisions with absolutely no repercussions whatsoever. Isn't that a problem? <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't take that view of the ECB just as a just as a slight disclaimer. But I think, you know, Henry Ford apparently was once asked, I don't know whether this is true, or rather he once said that if you ask the customers, the people who are working with existing technologies at the current time, if you ask them what they wanted, um, at the time before the automobile, they would have asked for a faster horse. And I think that people who are going to push back on Bitcoin regulation may be subject to a sort of similar, they may be wearing those blinders. And they may think that just because we're regulating it as a financial product um, means that blockchains as a whole are, are never going to succeed and never going to take off. Ultimately, a blockchain is so easy to create that I, whereas an AM radio station or an FM radio station or a satellite radio station, these are actually quite capital intensive enterprises. The very nature of blockchain creation is simple and easy. You can do it in, in, at the click of a button. This is why I don't really see regulation of Bitcoin in finance as being something which is going to affect uh, long-term development of blockchain and decentralized computing technology. It's just, it, you know, they're two completely different things, radio and blockchains. In this particular case, I think that um, you're incorrect. Uh, again, just as a clarification here, FM radio specifically was innovative. One of the ways is that it required exponentially less power for exponentially more broadcast range. And so it actually would have enabled the breaking of the monopoly that AT&T had at the time 
over long, or it was Bell at the time, over long distance um, communications, which all AM radio went over. If you were syndicated, you went over Bell lines and to be delivered to other radio stations. So what actually FM radio threatened was it made it possible for people to set up very small repeaters using very little power and create entirely different national networks that would not take up additional bandwidth because, again, it was in a different spectrum. So the the analogy is very, very solid as far as the suppression that went on. What happened is that um, when they approved FM radio, it was restricted to lower power amounts than uh, AM radio was previously so that it would only slightly overshoot uh, what AM radio was able to provide and thus not make such a network possible. But yeah, actually, early radio stations were hobbyist entirely. They were incredibly cheap to set up and they were pervasive and community-based. The, the analogy really is quite good. And it, if the government turned around and banned blockchain databases, I would oppose it, and I would oppose it very publicly. Well, so. but, that's what they, but that's not what they would do. Again, the, if you take the analogy and you apply it here, what they'll do is they'll neuter it. They'll say that you can use these features and these features, but if you use too much of this thing or too much of that thing, well, that's not going to work. And what they'll do is they'll drag down the differences between what the better new paradigm solution is and the worse old paradigm solution is so that one is only a little bit better, but it also has all of this extra stuff that you have to do. Well, ultimately, I think that, again, I mean, I think that those who, there will be individuals who continue to use Bitcoin and continue to use it outside of the mainstream financial system and without actually making a, a sort of normative statement one way or the other. For those individuals, I think that it will continue to perform its functions just fine. And nothing about this bans Bitcoin at all. And I think that if that if they went that far, that would be a very oh, that would be oppressive. And I think that that would be crossing the line. But really, all they're saying here is that in client service provision, we call it in the UK, we call it regulated activities, holding, dealing, trading on behalf of a client. You have to comply with certain regulations. And those regulations are really designed towards one purpose, and that's protecting the consumers. Yeah, it would be oppressive if they banned it, but it's not oppressive to require any Bitcoin wallet to, uh, you know, be monitored by somebody and have transactions over $3,000 reported and have a driver's license and keep the records for 10 years and uh, fingerprint the people. It's I mean, for it's your just, protection, Stephanie. It almost reads like a joke, and I've been using Bitcoin just fine without it. Thank you very much. But you don't need to submit to it. That's the great thing about it. You can continue to use peer-to-peer Bitcoin services, participate in the Bitcoin economy, buy it, sell it in other jurisdictions where this regulation doesn't exist. And all the Bitcoin businesses are going to move to those areas where this regulation doesn't exist. And, and you're right about that. Well, that's some, this is something we've seen. So this is something we've seen before, admittedly. Um, look at the Channel Islands. Um, only recently, or the Channel Islands, the offshore jurisdictions used to be blacklisted by the OECD. And they came in from the cold. I think we're going to see really the same kind of regulatory arbitrage in the Bitcoin sector. Well, the thing that I'm concerned about, though, um, is that states borrow bad ideas from each other. What's going to happen is New York is going to put these policies in place and then everywhere else, Europe is going to start to adopt them, the rest of the states. And pretty soon it's going to be this <laughs> divided world where there are very few places where you can uh, use Bitcoin freely, perhaps maybe uh, Switzerland, Hong Kong, Singapore, something like that. And m- most of the rest of the world, you won't be able to use it freely. And people will think that's civilized when it's actually the opposite. It's interesting you should mention Switzerland, because um, I haven't personally been involved in any of the projects there. But I'm informed that the Ethereum team, which is based in Sug, 
um, has actually had a very productive series of discussions with the Swiss regulator about having access to the Swiss banking system for cryptocurrencies. And I, I'm not surprised by that at all, because the Swiss economy is highly dependent on financial services. They understand it quite thoroughly and comprehensively. And so I think their regulators are in a position to really see that crypto chain or crypto ledger and blockchain mediated finance has value quite beyond, well, has value within a legal system. And so you should embrace it. I don't know what the status of those discussions are. Um, also, the Isle of Man has taken a very progressive approach towards But see, the overreach is, is not going to stop because you have this thing called, that, what is it, FATCA in the U.S., the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, where the U.S. is telling foreign banks in Switzerland or wherever, well, you have to report on U.S. customers and you have to make sure you're not taking an American citizen as a customer. And if you do, you got to report to the IRS how much money they've got and give us access to their account. If we look at what FATCA does, why couldn't they do the same thing with Bitcoin? And where is it going to stop? I think that the way to approach that problem, and I agree with that. I mean, as an expat, I have to file every year and do account declarations and that sort of thing. And I find it equally outrageous. I think the thing to do is not to make it a Bitcoin specific problem, but when they overreach into Bitcoin, it becomes our problem, which is really everybody else's problem as well. So if there is a particular, if we oppose this particular money laundering provision, this particular extraterritorial tax jurisdiction provision, the thing to do is not say you shouldn't regulate Bitcoin. It's to say you shouldn't regulate us and you're regulating Bitcoin. Look at what you've done as a consequence of this. Imagine what happens if you liberate this particular sector of the economy. And this really gets back to what I was saying at the beginning of the conversation. We should expect states to apply the law consistently. And I don't think there's any problem that they are applying the law consistently, but there are problems with what the laws are. And so there are two ways to approach it. Either the Bitcoin community can look at this extension of state authority over Bitcoin in the state of New York, and they can say, well, this is oppressive about Bitcoin and you should keep your hands off Bitcoin. And, you know, Bitcoin was made without you. It's independent of you. That's one approach. The other one is to try to make the argument in the wider case to everybody and to say, look, to the whole country, really, should you have the government managing your consumer banking transactions this closely? Should you have this degree of control? And I think that's that's really the only way to actually get the government to roll it back is to get a democratic consensus and get people elected who actually believe that these laws are, you know, guys like Rand Paul, who may, I don't know what his democratic consensus. Does anyone actually think it's a good idea to have a report filed on them every time they do a transfer of more than three thousand dollars? There might day? be a generational I mean, gap, uh, Preston. I think that a lot of us view the the system as it stands right now as fundamentally incapable of doing anything other than what it continues to do, which seems to be, you know, perpetuate itself and not much else. How old do you think I am? Generational gap. I just turned thirty. One thing I was at a conference the other day, uh, the other day, the other month here in London. And being a libertarian, I, I'm also a fellow of the Adam Smith Institute here in London. I have seen over the really over the course of the last five years, the number of young people who have a pretty high degree of distaste for the government's role in their lives is rising. And it's rising very quickly. And they're becoming more cogent in their opposition. And they, they're becoming, you know, libertarianism used to be pretty niche. Um, you know, I, it was a pretty cool thing. There weren't many of us around here in England. But now there are more and more. And I think that things like Bitcoin and the internet itself are teaching people that they can do things for themselves. And that's really important. Because if people learn that they can do things for themselves, and that just becomes their day-to-day MO, then what will wind up happening is they're going to start asking questions when they get to sort of 30, 35 years old. 
and start moving into positions of power or positions of responsibility. And they're going to say, well, hold on a second. Is this really necessary anymore? So I think Bitcoin, you know, at the current time, in the current circumstances, shouldn't be terribly surprised at what's happened with the New York regulations. But what we should do is we should look in the broader context. And rather than saying this is oppressive because it stops Bitcoin, we should look at the whole system and say, well, hold on a second. Let's make the wider case to everybody and try to get these laws repealed if we disagree with them. You said, Preston, that you think the government should apply laws consistently, especially financial laws. Have you ever heard the phrase too big to jail? What happened during the financial crisis a couple years ago right here in the U.S. and all over the world? What happened with the Libor scandal? In all these instances where large institutions were the ones who were actually protected by regulation and didn't get the consequences that another person who wasn't quite so entrenched might have gotten. I think that well, with the Libor scandal, people did get tried. People are under investigation for that. As to the financial crisis itself, being a, a securitization lawyer, I actually take the view that was a, that was a macroeconomic crisis. There was some irresponsible behavior, but it wasn't necessarily criminally irresponsible. There are instances where people go to jail in banks all the time. Where's um, Andreas when we need him? <laughs> yeah, no, I can, I, I'm, I'm actually quite grateful he isn't here because I suspect he would tear me to shreds. But remember, I'm, you know, I'm working for the man, but I think I see it from their perspective. Why didn't anyone go to jail for the financial crisis? Well, because it was an asset price bubble from which everyone benefited, in which everyone participated, and from which everybody also suffered when it collapsed. So yes, there's a difference between irresponsibility and criminality. Right now, arguably, the markets are pretty obviously substantially inflated. We are in the middle of a bubble. It's not a bubble that looks fantastic, but it is still an all-time bubble. I mean, will it be different if this pops and there's another crisis? Will there still be no responsibility? I think if you're looking for responsibility, it's really a question of government policy in this instance. Um, it's, a, it's a question of interest rates being too low, too long. And as a consequence, asset prices have never been higher. Uh, you know, Bond yields have never been lower. But so was this regulation as a tragedy of the commons? Regulation is a tragedy of the commons. I haven't heard that one before. I think that it's a question of short-term political decision-making as against long-term prudence. But again, I'm not one of these guys who says bankers should be thrown in jail for X. Preston is saying that the decisions that are made are short-term because that's what the focus is on. So isn't that the definition of a tragedy? Isn't that why they come about is because the only people who control the assets only have short-term perspectives and the owners never actually have any control over it, so to speak? Yeah, it just struck me as as very similar. Yeah, sure. The the profits are privatized and the risk is socialized, right? That was the whole issue with that whole financial crisis. But that's a system feature. I mean, that's not something we're ever going to get rid of. No, I think that's enforced by regulation and by the state. Why well, you I think mean, it's a system feature and why it can never be be removed? There's a belief in free markets, or there's not a belief in free markets, and there are people who think that free markets work sometimes, but well, they need to be supplemented. That's, in my opinion, not a belief in free markets. Belief in free markets, I and mean, I believe that a free market system is the best system. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge how social democracy works, and the fact is, we are living in, in a social democratic age. And what we see everywhere is that governments take short-term political decisions and offset the cost of those decisions into the future, usually through the issuance of debt or alternatively through the printing of money and inflation. Habermas identified it. He said it's it's a legitimation crisis. You keep putting things off and putting them off and putting them off. And he said, eventually, one day, the state is not going to be able to meet the programmatic demands that it sets on itself. And so when you have that kind of a, of a view of how crises work and how they break and, and how they continue, I can't take the view that anyone is really responsible. It's just a consequence of behavioral economics. So I'm not going to say, you know, someone belongs in jail if the current asset price bubble pops. It happened. 
fact is most of the world's central banks are, are contributing to it and they're contributing to it because of political decisions. It's a system feature, unfortunately, whether we like it or not. And the real answer to the, you know, the question is, do we want this to continue? If the answer is no, then you have two options. Option A is, well, Bitcoin, and people say Bitcoin can prevent this from happening again. I'm not entirely sure that's true. Another one of those answers is political reform and try to make our institutions more effective. And from my perspective, that's actually the better decision. And that's the thing that we really need to be looking at and studying. Um, and in that context, I think there is a role for cryptocurrency to play. But I don't think that role is one where you're resisting the state up front and, um, and flouting the laws openly. I think that you actually have to integrate it and realize the efficiencies that the technology allows rather than trying to fight back with it. I guess Satoshi's going to jail then. <laughs> yeah, Satoshi's going to jail. No, it's okay. Again, that's why Satoshi was the smart one. Again, it's, it's a little hilarious, but it makes NXT look really, really clever too. <laughs> Obviously, they saw what was coming and it's this and now we're here. Preston, I think a difference between our perspectives really is that you seem to think that there can be good outcomes from the existing system. I, I would agree with that view. I think that I think that there are outcomes to, ha to be had, which are positive, from using decentralized computing technology in a way which is totally legally compliant. I think it'll get people thinking differently about their, their relationship with government and their relationship with the banking system. And I think that that kind of incremental approach, rather than a, simple, you know, a direct head-on approach, ultimately is going to be the one which prevails and determines the future of the financial system. Stuff like this is going to happen. This is a bit like gravity. It's already in motion. Things are falling. It's going to happen. So a lot of people are looking at it like, how much can we influence the decision before this happens and thereby make it not bad, not as bad? And the perspective that I take on it is how fast can we run and develop this stuff to show how ridiculously stupid they're being by downplaying this stuff. Again, like the, the non-monetary uses of tokens is totally not, I mean, there's there's no recognition whatsoever. And again, the best we'll get is exemptions. And I mean, I didn't mention this on the air, but uh, what we're probably going to wind up doing is blocking everybody in New York. If you have a New York IP address, um, you'll be able to see our content, but you won't be able to give us a, a cryptocurrency address. That's what they said on um, Reddit. There's going to be a thing that comes up on the website. If you live in New York, you're prohibited yeah. from accessing this website. That's unreal. I mean, that is just so Orwellian. No, totally. But again, it's what it, because it's because of the way that they've set up the rules in this case, where they say if you have a single user, not customer, but user in that jurisdiction, whether you know it or not, for all of your customers, you're responsible for the rules that are being applied to your New York customers. And it's the same thing basically California does with healthcare laws. Where like if you have a California corporation and you also have uh, employees who are other places, all of your employees, even when they're other places, need to have the same kind of crazy, uh, very, very expensive insurance and uh, benefits package that your California employees do. And so it's just easier most of the time for larger companies to just have more than one company. And you put the company in the crazy state all by itself and it does its own thing. And then the rest of them are a different company. And so, like, again, it doesn't actually stop anything. It just makes it so it, there's a higher barrier to entry and you have to spend slightly more money in order to be able to do stuff. Like I mean, that. it's really it's I've never seen you know, or heard of a, when the conservative government was elected in the UK back in 2010. They there was a proposal to make a great repeal bill. And uh, in law school, they showed us a couple of books, of you know, a couple of shelves worth of books. And on one shelf, about two thirds of the way down were all of the laws that had been passed between 1640 and 1997. And then the other four shelves were all of the laws that have been passed from 1997 to 2009. 
So I think, I think there's this really quite powerful, uh, there's a very good reason to start pushing back. But I think, you know, speaking as a lawyer, you have to push back legally. And the way that you do that is by making your case and by electing politicians who support your position. People say that's <laughs> What impossible. evidence is there that that works? Right. I mean, th- that's, that's exactly, you know, again, this is the, di- the primary difference is that you view that as a potentially eff- uh, effectacious uh, venue for, for making these types of changes. And we view that as a giant waste of time and money. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But you know, you have to, you have to choose your, um, totally. Yeah. You have to, you have, you have to pick your battles and decide how you want to approach things. I think that there are, you know, I can't think of any off the top of my head. There are small victories, which happen from time to time in the UK. They repealed a section of a law which made it illegal to insult someone. It was Section 5 of the Public Order Act, uh, 1986. So that but, was a but small these victory. Are, that, but again, yeah. these are victories against yeah. things, against wounds that have been inflicted, you know, self-inflicted. That's, that's the issue is that, yes, they might make things better, but they made it worse in the first place to need to make it better. Right. If you're yeah. a libertarian, then you should know Harry Brown, who said, uh, what, government breaks your legs and then hands you a crutch and says they fixed the problem. You're, ultimately, your politics and how you then approach uh, your philosophy of change totally. have to be two separate things. If you're going to be a political actor who gets taken seriously, if you're going to be working in commerce, you have to compromise on what you do and your approach to these problems. I think that the technology will really change the way that people look at their governments. And I think that that is the real value in it. I think that by regulating this technology and spreading it more widely because the mainstream financial system can interact with it, that's going to make more people aware of its benefits and what it can do and that you don't need financial intermediaries for a lot of things. And once you get to that point, then the light bulb goes off and people say, well, hold on a second. If I don't need an intermediary for this, what about a hundred other things that I'm doing as well? So it's a nuanced approach. It's one that really I, I get a lot of flack for all the time. But um, but ultimately, I think that this very slow and gradual change, one day it's going to break and everyone will. there will be a, a tipping point, a critical mass where everyone realizes its benefits. And at that point, that's when a lot of these laws are going to get rolled back. And a lot of institutions are going to have to start being very worried about their market position. We're not there yet, but I don't think we should rush it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com and listeners like yourself. I'm unplugging for the next few weeks, and while sponsors have been great, it didn't happen for this trip. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit the show notes or head over to Let'sTalkBitcoin.com to send us a tip in either Bitcoin or LTB coin. Oh, and today's magic word is new. That's N-E-W, new. You've got until the 23rd of August to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com and enter the magic word for your share of the listener rewards. Content for today's episode was provided by Preston Byrne, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. The LTB platform is now open source under the name Tokenly. A link to the forum thread introducing it is in the show notes, and if you'd like to contribute to our PHP-based project, you can now earn 10,000 LTBC for every commit that's accepted into the main branch. Thanks for listening.